Hello there. Starting tonight, I'll be taking you on a ride through the world of mental and physical differences as seen through the people who embrace those differences in pursuit of a more accessible and tolerant society. It is my hope that through this program, we can cast that oh-so-important spotlight of existential dialogue on an often-forgotten community, that of the neurodiverse and physically diverse. So hop on board and let's turn disability into ability. Who better to start us off on our journey of transformation than Haley Moss? Diagnosed with high-functioning autism at three years old, Moss and her parents were told by doctors that she would be lucky to graduate high school. She not only went on to do so, she also graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in criminology and psychology, respectively. After graduating from the University of Miami Law School in 2019, Moss was sworn into the Florida Bar as the first openly autistic female attorney. We turn now to part one of our interview. Uh, I just wanted to start off by uh, asking a general question here, which is uh, what really brought you to the field of social advocacy? That's a great question. I think what happens with social advocacy is a lot of us discover it as a passion almost by accident. I know that sounds kind of strange to say, but when I say we discover it by accident, we discover it by circumstance, lived experience, or something we get into. So what happened with me is I got into disability advocacy in particular when I was a teenager. I had no interest whatsoever. I knew nothing about advocacy. I, I volunteered to speak on a panel at a conference, mostly because I was young. I wanted to give back, and said conference was in Orlando, Florida. If you have never been to Orlando or aren't very familiar, it is very, very close to Disney World. So when you are a young person, the idea of going to Disney World and volunteering a little bit of your time is pretty appealing. And when I was on this panel as a young person, I was about 13. I was the only girl. I was the youngest one. And a lot of the questions from the audience happened to be directed at me because of that experience. And I was very aware of the difference that I was making. And that was how I got connected with my publisher and all sorts of other things as a young teenager. And my life has never been the same ever since. No, I definitely imagine that uh, that that was uh, that was a really uh, life changing experience for you. And then I just want to go back a little bit in time as well because I uh, I read in your book that your parent, well, specifically your book, The Young Autistic's Guide to Independence, uh, and I've listened to your podcast as well. Spectrumly speaking, for those of you, by the way, uh, out there, please tune into the podcast. It is a revolutionary podcast dedicated to. Uh, breaking down the barriers of neurodiversity, get to that in a little bit. But uh, anyway, I read in your book that your parents explained your diagnoses to you in terms of Harry Potter. Uh, now, how did they do this? How did this really help you come to terms with your uh, neurological difference, per se? I'm so glad you want to talk about this. My parents told me I was autistic when I was nine years old, and I was really into the Harry Potter series at that time. Keep in mind, nine-year-old me was a very different time. The Harry Potter fandom was at a very different place, and its cultural significance was very different than it is today. I say that very aware of the fact that J.K. Rowling is considered controversial, to put it lightly, right now. <laughs> and when we're talking about Harry Potter, it's my parents brought up that I had superpowers and magical differences, essentially. And what they were saying is that different was neither better nor worse. It's just different. Yeah. And different could be extraordinary. So Harry Potter didn't quite fit in 
with the muggles because he was a wizard. And he didn't quite fit in with the wizards either because they looked at him funny as the boy who lived with that lightning bolt scar. But he was the hero of the story. And he was still respected. He was still able to be included, all sorts of things like that. And that gave me, as a nine-year-old who was obsessed because the first movie just came out, (laughs) a very different look on how I saw myself. So I didn't think of myself as weird or different, as I know so many young autistic people do. I just thought that I was really cool and other people just didn't understand me. So Harry gave me that framework to understand why I was the way I was and that I was just fine the way I was. Like, I didn't have to be somebody else to be liked or fit in and that I had my own sort of magic within me. And that that was something that was really affirming, I think, as a young person and realizing that I never thought that I was broken, as I know many young people with neurological differences and disabilities often feel that something is wrong with them or they're broken or they're a failed version of normal. That, that was something I've never felt. And I think a lot of that does come from the way that my parents raised me, that they talked about my disability, and also the way that they explained it to me and that I had that knowledge once they determined it was appropriate for me to know and that I had a level of understanding that I would get what was going on. Absolutely. And so I know, of course, Harry Potter, he learned a great deal more about his special powers through going to Hogwarts and whatnot. What would you say some of uh, some of those powers were? I know that uh, in the media and in general, uh, individuals who are neurologically diverse tend to have uh, different or I would say are somewhat stereotyped, especially uh, having read in your book as well, Great Minds Think Differently that neurologically diverse individuals tend to be stereotyped as these mathematical geniuses who can solve things at the drop of a hat. Uh, but I know that you also... I wish that was me. Yeah, likewise. No, seriously, I, I can't... I have dyscalculia, so I, I'm not the math whiz either. But I would say, too, I was really impressed, particularly, that you really made uh, an argument for humanities and a, an emphasis on the arts. Would you say that uh, that some of your talents really began in those fields? Or what, what were those talents that you had, those Harry Potter-like talents that you had growing up? Well, I think we're just going to think about who I was at nine years old. And a lot of this is still very true about who I am today, but I had a near photographic memory as a kid. I also was very creative. So when I was at that age, I was doing acting in all my school plays. I had never made it to Hollywood or anything like that. I wasn't one of those like child actors. I just liked acting and drama. I was very creative, so I also was involved in the arts. I just loved everything that was creative. I loved to write. I loved to draw and paint. I loved all of that as a young person and as a kid. I was also very sensitive. I always was a better listener than a talker, I always felt like growing up. I loved to play. I loved strategizing and coming up with new ways to solve problems. So I grew up on a very steady love of video games. I was an interesting kid. And I was always imagining different ways of exploring. And I was, I think that was something that my parents really drilled into me as well. Like you're very sensitive. You're very creative. You're very curious. You're very smart. Like all of those things, instead of focusing on what I couldn't do or what was hard for me, because everybody, especially children know the things that are hard for them. They don't need to have it kind of thrown in their face. Essentially. I knew I didn't have the easiest time making friends. I knew there were plenty of things that were difficult for me, but I also knew that in, appreciated their mind you're like there's things you're really good at and it's not just that you're quote-unquote good at school it's that you have value as a person you're creative and your talents deserve to be in this world and getting some form of that when you're when you're 
nine or 10, or even when you're a teenager is invaluable. I think even as an adult, that's something that we don't do often enough. We always are very quick to criticize when folks do something wrong and not when they do something right. Or we go, especially for women, we might immediately go to complimenting what they look like or what they're wearing more so than the things that they're actually doing or character traits. So when I look back, I realized just how powerful, how my parents explained things to me really was. In terms of school, uh, what was a major learning experience for you in elementary school, middle school, high school that was really uh, influential for you, really informed your career choice? When I was in school, I didn't think that I wanted to be a lawyer. I say this very honestly because I didn't really know what lawyers did. I didn't know any lawyers. But one of those things that really made me determined to succeed, I think, might be a better answer thing to answer. So something that ended up happening when I was in high school is my, my school had one of those college fairs, as so many of us often go to. Hmm. And I was collecting the brochures for all these schools that were far away from my hometown. And a girl in my grade comes up to me and I'm like, not thinking anything of it in the moment. And she goes, Haley, you don't have to worry about this. And I just sit there very confused and I look at her or attempt to, and she goes, well, you could have been born a vegetable. It doesn't matter. Colleges don't care because it's just going to be basically like feeding into this narrative that I don't have to work as hard or I didn't work as hard or that I wasn't deserving that my disability alone would essentially get me somewhere. And I was really upset by this because we were in all of the same classes, largely. I was working just as hard. I wanted to go to a great college. I was really determined, and it made me feel heartbroken, realize that someone thought so little of me, little of what I was doing, that my disability alone was the only thing that was going to get me essentially a free pass in life. Not that I took the same test or I took the same, I was going to take the same SAT. Or I was going to have to write a great essay just and have extracurriculars just like everybody else. And I felt like being, throughout my career, I felt like I almost had to prove people wrong. And looking back, I realized that was never what something I ever had to do. I didn't have to prove anything to anyone but myself. And I think that's something a lot of young people with disabilities go through is you feel like you have to prove this narrative wrong, that you're so used to being told that you might not amount to anything or that your disability is basically a free pass in life, but you get told all of this messaging and you feel like I'll do anything in my power not to do the statistics. And the same even goes when you hear about autistic unemployment and autistic unemployment is extremely high that you're like, well, I'm not going to be a number. I'm going to be employed. That you put all of this unnecessary pressure on yourself just to prove people wrong. Looking back on that, I didn't realize what I was doing. I knew that I didn't want to be a statistic per se. But when I look back now, I realize I was doing this stuff for myself. I wasn't really doing it to prove people wrong, and I shouldn't be doing it to prove people wrong. But I wanted to go to a good college because I wanted to have that experience. I wanted to know what it was like to be away from home. I wanted an opportunity to figure out, like so many young people, what I did want to do with my life. Because I think when you're 15, 16, 17, that's a very difficult thing to do. That's a lot of pressure. And I'm lucky that going to college, and I went to University of Florida, go Gators, did put that fire in me that I realized I wasn't good at chemistry. I wasn't going to be a physician. And I realized that I love to write and I love to talk and I wanted to be a lawyer because I realized I can also help other people. So that was more than anything, kind of those pivotal moments and realizing that I wasn't doing it to prove people wrong. And that was something I also dealt with when I eventually took the bar exam is I took the exact same bar exam 
as all of my peers. I studied just as hard, if not harder. I worked for it and I got the result. I did not get a quote unquote free pass or, oh, you're the person with a disability. We're just going to rubber stamp your application. It never works like that. And I think it's really unfair that people who don't know tend to believe that. So there really is this kind of disconnect. And when you're advocating, and like you said with social advocacy earlier today, that when you're advocating for yourself and with others, it's a very different experience. And you don't, you want to do it so those same barriers aren't there for other people. Interestingly enough, it's funny you mentioned standardized tests. What do you believe standardized test companies should do with regard to individuals with disabilities? I did do my research on how the LSAT essentially is discriminating against students with disabilities, but, and the same goes for the bar exam for that matter. Honestly, I, I have a very strong opinion on standardized tests. I think that they don't actually measure anything that is useful. I think that the bar exam doesn't tell you if you're going to be a competent attorney. I don't think that the SAT really tells you if you're going to be competent as a college student, for instance. What these tests do is they're designed as gatekeeping functions. They keep out, they were designed to keep out people who might not have money for their classes. They are designed to, they were originally designed to exclude people who are marginalized and especially by race, so they're racist. They dis, they discriminate against people with disabilities, so they're ableist. That's the end thinking about the bar exam history. It was originally designed to keep out women, so it is also sexist. So keeping in mind all of these different systems at play when it comes to standardized tests, that essentially they should be abolished, or if they when they are, they need to be replaced with something that actually measures something useful, not who has access to private tutors, not who has access traditionally to these tests or will perform well, or who gets accommodations, which are always on a case-by-case basis. And a lot of that is also, again, determined by classes, things such as who has access to resources, who had accommodations and a diagnosis as a child, who has that demonstrated history, or who has access to a professional who will diagnose and work with a student accordingly. So that being said, I think what standardized companies, test companies can do right now is really reevaluate what they're measuring. And they also need to kind of, I think, if we're just reforming instead of rebuilding and abolishing it completely, I think what needs to be done is kind of that real look inward. What is this measuring? Why are we doing this? Who is being excluded? And how do we make sure that we either streamline this process or give everybody enough time from the get-go that we're going to have these issues about extra time? You're not going to have someone at a disadvantage, and you're not going to have someone at an advantage. Because I know plenty of folks who tried to take advantage of things like extra time, even if they didn't have a disability, thinking they would get an advantage. Mm -hmm. What if we just gave ample time that no matter who you are, you can complete this test, whether it takes you five minutes or five hours. Let's just say we give everybody five hours then. You will have people who finish in five minutes, and you will have people who will take all five hours. That doesn't put anyone at an advantage or a disadvantage. These aren't speed speed runs, essentially. So that's kind of one of the things on this topic. But overall, I would lean more towards that standardized tests need not exist unless they're for a very specific purpose, and that is outlined from the get-go and proven, and it's actually applied equitably. No, absolutely. And I know that you mentioned that as well in your book, uh, great minds think differently. You know, you said that, quote, legal scholarship may be inclusive of neurodivergence uh, with analysis of autisms in legal proceedings and policy, but few, if any, tackle the issues facing the profession through a neurodiverse lens. That's an interesting quote there. Uh, would you mind going into that a little bit more, for example? So 
how would the legal profession better view uh, individuals with disabilities or how could law firms change their thinking around neurodiversity from where they are now? First off, I think it's important to acknowledge that legal moves a little bit slow on most diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues. Right. I say that very deliberately. Is When I was applying to summer associate positions, disability wasn't even something that was considered. There's always a footnote that, yes, you can ask for an accommodation, but that's about it. It's not that you're encouraged to apply as if you are a marginalized or by gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, or wherever in the world you may be from as well, or if you're a veteran, for instance. And sometimes even veterans have a very different road through this and may also be people with disabilities, but I digress there, is what seems to happen is that it's still seen that there's a very black, like kind of very simplistic view of diversity that isn't all inclusive. And when it comes to disability and neurodiversity in particular, the legal field has ways of being exclusionary. So the bar application process often asks people about their mental health, if they're being treated, if they're receiving treatment, if they've ever received treatment, what medication they may be taking, all sorts of things that may not only border on a privacy violation, but are discriminatory in nature. So it's more of a sympathetic lens, you think, more than an empathetic lens, perhaps? I think I think it, there needs to obviously be an empathetic lens. And even realizing when I was in school and when I got to the profession, at most neurodivergent attorneys I knew would always conceal it, that yeah. they didn't feel safe sharing that about themselves at work or in the profession. And that a lot of hiring systems, and this is for all professions rather, have ways of excluding people who are neurologically different and ensuring essentially that we don't get to positions of power. So I didn't know any professors with disabilities, let alone neurodivergence. I didn't know other students who were neurodivergent. And we weren't given the same power in organizing, say, student organization as today's students have now three to four years after I graduated. So things look very different now than even when I was in law school. And I think a lot of it does come down to the power that students have. And that's something that we don't often think about is young people have a lot more power than they get credit for. They're able to organize with each other. They're able to communicate like never before, thanks to the internet. But things happen a lot quicker, a lot better, and a lot more efficiently than ever before. They absolutely do, I would say. Absolutely. Especially with regard to uh, companies, for example, EY. I know uh, I know you mentioned that a lot in your book as well, and uh, a lot of different uh, companies. What uh, law firm initiatives are you aware of that, that have really changed that or have started to change the course of that discussion? I wouldn't say there's a specific hiring program or anything, and even those I think need to be revamped quite a mm-hmm. bit as well. But some of the big firms do have affinity groups that people with disabilities and their allies can join. And they do think internal programming, support, and things of that nature. But that's still in the minority of firms rather than the majority. A common stereotype these days as well is we know that ASD affects people across, and uh, autism spectrum, affects people across different racial and socioeconomic groups. But it's still believed that it's four times or so more commonly diagnosed in Boys and girls, for example, we often see there's a stereotype there that, it, that you got to be white, you got to be a man, you got to be uh, of a certain age. Why is this the case? Is, do you believe that there's a certain bias in the medical profession or, or, uh, or, uh, or in law? Or where, where do you believe the bias lies? There's bias everywhere you look or if you choose to uncover it and really dive in. So when you're thinking about 
how we diagnose and identify autism, how the criteria for a di- diagnosis is written, that a lot of the early research focused exclusively on boys, exclusively on men, and most of them primarily were white boys and men. We didn't think of as much about communities of color. We weren't thinking about women. We weren't thinking about gender diverse individuals. We weren't thinking about adults. We had a very narrow lens of how we were viewing autism, even that, but also social factors. I live in Miami, and most things in Miami are in both English and Spanish because there's a very large Hispanic and Latino population here. That if there were no resources in Spanish, a large subset of the community would not have access to resources about autism and related disabilities. There's cultural biases as well that in certain communities, and I've had this explained to me by friends, students, and colleagues alike, that in different communities, it's not accepted that disability education, acceptance, and confidence is very different. It's like this around the world as well. So when we expand past the United States and we see how disability is handled in other countries and other continents, we have a very different view. So I want to say when we're talking about bias, we can unpack this on every level. We can unpack the criteria used in the United States. We can unpack how the legal system treats people with disabilities. But there's a lot of different truths at play, and you will realize that ableism is a part of every single one of them. Where do you think that ableism really exists? Where have you seen that in uh, in modern society these days? Just some examples that that you've seen just from a personal experience. I know that's quite a vast uh, question. I was going to say, where haven't we? But we can even talk about something very simple of like closed captions on Zoom. Or we can talk about something like the girl that I met when I was in high school. Or we can talk about the way that you go through school when you're not being given the accommodations you need that you think that you're just lazy and dumb, even though that's not the case. Or we can talk about how people go, but you can't have autism, you're a girl. We can say all sorts of different things and unpack this all day long. But it's amazing the levels of things that you see or even the insensitivity. The thing with ableism that I always mention is it's a lot different than some of the other isms. It's a lot sneakier. Because here's the thing about ableism. People don't intend to act poorly towards people with disabilities. They don't want to treat them badly. People think that if they say the right words, they offer assistance, and they follow this very prescribed rule book, but they're not being ableist. They're not being harmful. But it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes we get offered assistance when it's neither wanted nor needed, or given assistance when it's neither wanted nor needed. That's a form of ableism, too. That even the terminology that we use, think about when you were in school, maybe folks use the R word quite a bit. That's also ableism. Is think about how this is throughout all of our lives, the way that we talk about illness, the way that we talk about pandemic, the way that we talk about differences, and even students who are receiving special education services in school. But it is a very layered conversation that affects every aspect of our lives, whether it's policy, whether it's daily living, whether it's friendships and relationships, or our jobs, or where we live, that is very hard to avoid the fact that ableism is probably a part of the environment that you're in. And it's not something that is easily just eradicated. It really does take a lot of effort. Sometimes you end up educating more than you would want to or hope to, and it's exhausting. Absolutely. And I know, uh, I know you've definitely, uh, had a lot to say as well when it, uh, when it comes to ableism, I, I think too, you've spoken a lot about that in terms of, uh, independence as well in certain situations, uh, where we might not have seen that ableism before, right? Uh, for example, I know you've spoken a lot at length about 
the uh, the Free Britney movement and conservatorships, do you believe that mm -hmm. uh, conservatorships display that same form of ableism that we still see in the disability rights movement today? When we talk about Free Britney, there's more than just it's a very complicated system. So not yeah. only is it what conservatorship and guardianship is and isn't, but for places like for people like Britney Spears, you also have that display of sexism. You have things that are at play, especially because she is someone who is famous. She's a woman. She has a lot of money at stake, while most disabled people are more likely to be in poverty or do not have that same wealth as someone like Britney Spears does. So when we put that in perspective, it looks very different. But the guardianship system primarily impacts people with disabilities. It largely affects people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as elderly folks. So think of those different classes of people with disabilities. And what it does is it essentially takes away a lot of a person's rights in order for, and transfers them to another person or lets another person be in charge of a lot of aspects of that person's life. So in Florida, for instance, if you're under a guardianship, you might lose the right to vote. And a lot of people are very surprised when they learn that because they don't think the right to vote is something that could easily be taken away from you. Wow. And a sign in the pen and giving powers of what you can do or where you can live, things like that to another person, you may also lose that right. So when we talk about guardianship, especially because it primarily does affect young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as people over the age of 65, you have a very different story being told. Britney Spears is almost an exception in that story. It doesn't usually happen to pop stars. It's less common with people who likely have psychiatric and mental health disabilities. So that's kind of a little bit, but that's the scary thing with disabilities. You almost have to be as perfect and close to normal as possible because there is such a double standard. So if a, reg if a neurotypical young person was making the same mistakes, as Britney Spears did in that situation, they probably would not have been met with that same hostility or threat of guardianship. They might have just been chalked off to having a bad day, maybe going through a tough time or something of that nature. I think about this a lot when we talk about services. And I saw this actually on a TV interview of someone mentioning like how sometimes kids would like poke at dead skin and stuff. Whoa. And usually it was just one of those things like, I saw this on a TV interview the other day, and that was something that I was thinking about. Yeah. It was with an autistic actor, and he brought this up, like, that's just something that kids would do, like, in school. But when he did it, it was seen as that he was doing self-injurious injurious behavior when really kids were just, like, fascinated by this thing. And But when he did it, he was held to a very different standard as the typical kids were. So there really is that double standard that comes into play when it comes to independence more broadly, let alone things like guardianship and conservatorship for people with disabilities. Absolutely. And so I would ask as well, just, uh, you know, we have these different interventions per se uh, in specific. Uh, and I know neurodiversity as well talks a lot about, you know, there's a difference uh, between, uh, you know, there's obviously we have the uh, people who believe in curing autism, and then there's the belief in people who believe in slight interventions. Where do you think uh, the line is uh, as, a, as an advocate in the field? Where, where does that line intersect, per se, if you, it, do, uh, if you know what I mean? You know, what, where does it cross the line from being wanting to cure autism to uh, making autism work for a person rather than against them, per se? Oof, that's a great question. For me, my answer is how do we improve quality of life? And I say that, and I think it's a very broad thing to answer. So when I look at quality of life, that's like 
I might not want to care for autism, but I would love something that, for instance, helps a lot of autistics alleviate anxiety. Or if a lot of us have sleep issues, as I know is very common in the community, that would be great. It would be great to also be my autistic, wonderful self and also be able to sleep at night, for instance. So I say that kind of as a way that most people can kind of get behind of, yeah, some of these things that are genuinely damaging or stressful or actually harmful to the person or the people around them, extinguishing that behavior or replacing that behavior or being able to alleviate the burdens of certain conditions that are just difficult would be super helpful. So I know that kind of is a very difficult line to enforce, and I think that's by nature. So I don't think a cure would help. I think a cure might cause additional problems Mm. in the community, not only in the community, but our society. But I do think that alleviating certain things that are known quality of life issues can be extremely helpful. Autistic people deserve the same rights, the same love, respect, and anything as any other human being. So I look at it as how do we just make sure that we're able to have those same things and the support to be able to do so. So a lot of that also comes down to how you think that research dollars should be spent and how research should be funded, which I am not the best person to comment on, but I would love to see more of these efforts being spearheaded by autistic researchers, autistic adults, and also having less barriers to access to even get to research or to participate in research. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely agree. Uh, I think uh, everybody can get behind that as well. I would say, too, um, interestingly, uh, I know that you you spoke a bit as well in your book about uh, about uh, therapy from a horse. Interestingly enough, hippotherapy. I found that to be extremely uh, interesting and, and uh, uh, in a way revolutionary because uh, I, uh, I had always thought as well, interventions often meant you know, occupational therapy and whatnot. What was uh, what was the purpose of uh, of that therapy, and what uh, what what uh, what? Uh, if you don't mind explaining, what, how did that help you out specifically? I would say too. I genuinely loved being around horses, and it actually started because my parents took me to a program in, down here in Florida. That it has a different name now, but at the time it was called Horses for the Handicapped, and oh. it was essentially teaching different like balance skills and connection and allowing people with disabilities access to horseback riding. It was extremely cool and I really loved it. And what it, what it helped with was I, I had that sense of confidence. I was athletic. I was also able to work on things like balance. It was really wonderful. And I know those organizations still exist that assist people with disabilities through horseback riding. And it was something that really definitely made a difference for me as a young person. No, absolutely. And so, uh, no, it's always important. I think connecting with people and like when it comes to interventions, like connecting with people on something that they care about, feel passionate about, and it's not going to be intimidating and scary. I think that's huge. Yeah, so, so really I learned a lot interest. from toys and play. I learned a lot from when I was riding horses I, and things like occupational therapy. Like, yes. So it's really about uh, catering, you would say, to the person's interests, per se, or uh, just uh, mm-hmm. what, what the I am not a therapist, are. so I do not know the best. Oh, no, of course, but uh, just from your own experience, I mean, too, did I you find that? When, here's a, I think kids know when something's up. I, I just feel like I had fun all the time. So <laughs> like, I was at, like I always had adults who wanted to hang out with me and play with me. I also was thought, I never thought anything of it because I'm an only child. I was used to being around adults all the time anyway. Yeah, no. Uh, so I can imagine too that really informed uh, a lot of that as well. Just uh, 
And so mm-hmm. uh, I just was wondering, too, just uh, as we start to close up the interview, I guess the most important thing I could ask, too, uh, we have probably a lot of listeners as well who who are really looking for that voice uh, as well to inspire them. So I was wondering if you could uh, leave us with some advice you could offer to those on the spectrum. So, for example, we're on the spectrum, uh, minorities on the spectrum who really are aspiring to embrace their differences, to become uh, lawyers or pursue post-secondary education. What advice can you offer uh, uh, to those listeners out there who are, who, are a little, uh, who are a little nervous about their difference but really want to make it work for them? That's it. Kind of put you on the spot there. (laughs) I just want people to know that you're not a, I I always feel very serious about this, especially with young people, is that you're not a failed version of normal. And whatever it is that you do bring to this world, whatever talents, gifts, or anything in between, or things that you're interested in, go for it. And it's up to us to encourage this. And I put that on listeners no matter who you are. So we have to encourage this excellence this passion and continue to grow it i think that's really really important i just want people to be i just want people to be happy successful and well adjusted and when i say that it means a lot of different things to different people so when we think about what makes us happy it might look very different between what makes you happy and what makes me happy your idea of success might look very different than mine and what being well adjusted means might look different maybe for some folks that's handling and managing and acknowledging trauma maybe that's settling down somewhere and being independent that it, all these things mean different things to different people and i think that's important as we do continue to do what's best in the in interest in each individual absolutely well uh ladies and gentlemen uh we have just about uh uh i think that uh, we've really reached our uh time here but uh definitely make sure to check out uh Haley moss's autistics guide to independence that uh came out two months ago if i'm not mistaken uh right is that right Haley? november so yep so i don't uh, even know i never know what time it is anymore yeah. <laughs> everything that's gone on in the world absolutely so uh, make sure to check out uh the autistics guide to independence and uh just want to take a moment to uh thank Haley moss for Uh, being our first guest on the program. So thank you very much, Haley. And uh, we really look forward to seeing what you do uh, uh, going forward. I did want to ask too, well, what can we, uh, what are we expecting uh, next in your adventure? You'll just have to wait and see. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I'm Abe Shapiro, and don't forget to live and learn.